This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Tika Tiwari, known as the Crypto Oracle or Mr. Big T, has been a Bitcoin enthusiast before most people had even heard of it. He's the lead editor of the Palm Beach Letter and part of the Palm Beach Research Group Newsletter Services. He's also an investment analyst and former hedge fund manager. Currently, he's heading up the DeFi technology strategy team listed on the NEO Exchange in Canada and in Frankfurt, and he's helping them put together their DeFi strategy. Back in 2016, he was buying Bitcoin at $420, and at a time when not too many people were listening, he was the Pied Piper of the Bitcoin train. He's been dead right about his predictions on Bitcoin, crypto, and decentralized finance for quite some time now. Several months ago, before the most recent rally, he predicted Bitcoin will reach sixty or even $70,000 a lot sooner than most people realize. Welcome, Tika. First of all, where are we in the crypto cycle? Bitcoin has just cracked $50,000. It did come back a little bit, but you're starting to hear more talk about bubbles coming into the conversation. Where are we in this crypto cycle? Well, first things first, I'd like to say thank you for having me here. It's uh, wonderful to be here. That's a fantastic question. And whenever the word bubble gets thrown around, I have to push back on that a little bit. So I will answer your question, but let's talk about this word bubble because people throw it around all the time. So we have to ask ourselves, can we call an asset a bubble when it's a trillion dollars large, when every time it's gone down, it's come back and made a new high. And so long as you've had a, at least a four-year time frame, you've never lost money in the asset. Can we call that a bubble? I agree with you. I'm asking you, you know, what do you think? Are we somewhere <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, no, this, in no. this bull market? Yeah, so no, I don't think we're in a bubble. That, that's my, my point that I'm trying to make is, is that no, I, I don't think we're in a bubble. I've experienced bubbles before and bubbles, they become huge, they collapse, and they never, ever come back. So no, Bitcoin is not in a bubble. Bitcoin is just the very beginning of what I expect to be a multi-year massive run. Now, is Bitcoin volatile? Yes, Bitcoin is incredibly volatile. Bitcoin can drop 30 or 40%, even 50% in a day, like we saw in March. But we should not confuse volatility with the asset class being in a bubble. If you look at the early days of some incredible wealth building stocks like um, Oracle, for instance, Oracle had periods in the early 90s when it dropped as much as 85%. Was that in a bubble? No, it wasn't. Microsoft had periods when it would drop 40, 45% in the late 80s and very early 90s. So, you know, in the early stage of asset class growth, you're going to have enormous volatility, whether that's you know Tesla more recently or, or Bitcoin for the last 10 years. And volatility is the admission price you pay for the type of life-changing gains, disruptive investments like Bitcoin, like Tesla, like Oracle in the past, like Microsoft in the past uh, can create for you. All right, looking at the institutional backing from companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy, Square, Stonebridge, and there are many others now coming on board as well. Mm-hmm. Are we facing the possibility of a Bitcoin supply shortage? Just last week, for example, MicroStrategy announced that they bought another billion. In other words, they're holding about 90,000 Bitcoin. The corporate take-up is getting quite fantastic. Yeah, uh, this is what is so incredible about the Bitcoin story, right? It, it, it has a completely in 
flexible emission schedule of new supply. So according to some recent articles that came out, uh, Square and PayPal, the, the buying from their customers now eats up every single newly Bitcoin every day. So that means all the new demand above and beyond what's coming from Square and PayPal has to come from the market, which is why we've seen this explosive move higher. So again, to me, this, this is, we're at the very beginning of that snowball, right? We've never had long-term corporate capital, long-term institutional capital ever allocate to Bitcoin. And so this is a very different form of buying. This type of buying doesn't really care on a day-to-day -day basis what the price of Bitcoin does. It makes an allocation and it puts it away for years. So, so what does that mean to the average everyday Bitcoin investor? What that means is, is that the tradable supply of Bitcoin, and it's going to be shrinking at scale, which is why I still think there is still enormous upside ahead uh, in Bitcoin beyond what most people can imagine. And, and people will think it's silly if I tell them where I think Bitcoin will go. But people have been telling me that I've been silly to buy Bitcoin ever since it was $400. Just on that point, uh, Stonebridge, the, the CEO there, Ross Stevens, was saying on the MicroStrategy had this convention basically introducing corporations to Bitcoin. And he was saying they can't, can't get out of cash fast enough. In other words, every bit of cash they get, they're investing in Bitcoin. And MicroStrategy announced last week that they bought at 52000 Of course, it dropped from that. They're also not concerned about these, these drops in prices. If you've been buying at $400, you've seen an 84% drop in 2017. So this is nothing for you. It's nothing. And I continue to buy Bitcoin personally. I own it in the 30s. I own it in the 40s. So for me, again, when I look at all the assets that I can potentially invest in, and, and let's say I have a five-year time frame, there's no asset that can offer the same compound annual rate of return in the world that Bitcoin, Bitcoin can right now, not unless I want to take enormous risk, right? In terms of the lowest risk, highest reward way to compound your money at an insane rate, there's nothing that comes close to Bitcoin. I mean, nothing, nothing comes close to it. Nothing in the stock market, nothing in the commodity market, nothing in the currency market. There's no other traditional financial asset I see uh, that can come close to the types of returns that Bitcoin can make over the next five years. So is this something that people have to now start considering as part of every portfolio? In your Absolutely, 100%. And I've been saying that since the early days. I, say, I would beg people, just take 1% of your assets. It's an inconsequential sum of money and put it into Bitcoin. And for the people that listened to me in 2016, if they took 1% of their assets and put it into Bitcoin, they, they're up 126 times their money. Right. So that's the quintessential essence of an asymmetric bet. When you can take one percent of your net worth and then make back one point two X of your entire net worth, like that's a bet you have to take. Anytime you can take that type of bet, that's a bet you take. I think that's what they call the barbell effect in investment, isn't that right? Where most of your money is in the in the safe stocks, the predictable ones, but then a small percentage that is just going to give you outsized growth putting in things like Bitcoin. That's the smartest way to be involved in crypto assets. And it's something, Kieran, that I, I have just sermonized on for five years. I've told people you don't need to take life-changing risk to make life-changing wealth. 
I'm a firm believer that most of your assets should be in, in safe investments. But a small percentage, let's say anywhere from from three to maybe 7% of your net worth, depending upon how old you are. If you're younger, you can certainly allocate more. Should be in asymmetric investments like Bitcoin because they have the ability to completely transform your life without putting your current lifestyle at risk. And that is the key to surviving an 85% drawdown. And that's how I was able to survive an 85% drawdown. If I had 50, 60, 80% of my net worth and I watched it drop 85%, I don't know that I would have had the courage to sit through that. I, I, I don't know if I would have. Let's talk about some of the other crypto projects that are looking interesting. You are involved in, in the DeFi space now. You've already mentioned that you're part of a company called DeFi Technologies and you're heading up that strategy team. DeFi, of course, is the big story of 2021. Tell us a little bit about that and your involvement in DeFi Technologies. Certainly. You know, decentralized finance to me is the largest money-making trend since the commercialization of the internet. Because for the first time ever, we've got a programmatic way to completely disintermediate the banking system. And there's so much waste in the banking system. And so you, you don't even have to be a, an oracle, to use your word, to figure that out. If you look at DeFi, it's grown from a billion dollars to, to $60 billion in capital committed to it over the last year. It's just incredible growth. But here's the problem with DeFi. Most traditional investors will never open up a crypto brokerage account, will never download a digital wallet, will never download Uniswap or Meta, sorry, MetaMask, and then use MetaMask in order to interact with the blockchain to start taking advantage of decentralized finance. And so those people are going to get left behind, Kieran. And so when I was approached by DeFi Technologies, I saw an opportunity to have a hand in creating the world's first publicly traded vehicle that would give traditional stock investors exposure to this incredible DeFi trend, which I think is going to be huge. And so, so you know, my ethos throughout my career has been to democratize access to emerging assets like Bitcoin. And through DeFi technologies, I get to do that, democratize access to decentralized finance. And, and it's, the company's really built on three pillars. So one is, is DeFi for everyone, uh, which is where we're engaging in the process of putting together ETP, so exchange-traded products, that will allow stock investors to get direct exposure to decentralized protocols, whereas now they would have to open up all types of different crazy crypto accounts in order to do that. So we're very excited about DeFi for everyone, uh, creating those products. And the second piece is called DeFi Treasury. You alluded to this earlier, that corporations have a huge problem. They're sitting on enormous slugs of cash. They're paying 50 basis points in some instances for the privilege of a bank to hold their money, and they're not getting any return. Now, a lot of CFOs don't have the courage to go out and buy Bitcoin because to them, they view it as a binary bet and potentially career ending. And so what we're working on is creating a product that would allow a CFO to get exposure to DeFi, but do it in a way uh, that doesn't entail career risk. I'm not saying that we have this right now, but this is the, the strategy that I'm working on is creating the type of product that they can hold in their balance sheet that is a security that makes sense to them. They don't have to call their board and, and say, hey, can we buy this? 
but it would give them exposure to the income is currently being generated in DeFi protocols, which can be anywhere from 6 to 12 to 15 to 20 percent. So they have no way to access that right now. So again, what we're doing is, is working on creating a type of product that they can hold on their balance sheet and have access to those yields. And then the third piece is called DeFi Incubate. And in DeFi Incubate, what we're doing is we're taking stakes in early stage decentralized finance protocols. And of course, this gives us access to uh, governance tokens at a very good rate and also gives us uh, equity exposure uh, in those projects. And so the reason why we are pursuing those three areas is that we think this is where the bulk of the value capture will be, which is in one, helping the everyday person get access to DeFi protocols through securitized products. Two, helping uh, corporate treasurers get access to DeFi protocols, again, through securitized products. And three, owning a basket of potentially explosive early stage DeFi protocols that we think could, you know, could end up becoming you know, potentially massive players in the space. And so we think using this three-prong approach puts our shareholders in the position to have broad exposure to three areas that we believe can capture an enormous amount of value as the decentralized finance trend plays out. I think just a point to make about it for people who are listening to this and who don't really understand what decentralized finance is, it really is an, an exchange, although there is an owner of the exchange, but you're buying and selling Bitcoin, crypto, and ultimately a whole lot of other different types of assets without really knowing the person on the other side and without an intermediary. The thing is settled by computer code. You know, the buying and selling is settled by uh, basically an algorithm. So one of the other things that, of course, is happening, and Ross Stevens from Stonebridge mentioned this just the other day, that, uh, sorry, I think it was MicroStrategy, they're actually borrowing on their balance sheet to buy Bitcoin. That's how much faith they've got in this. Um, and, and this is based primarily on their long-term study of the, the progress of the dollar. It's been declining at about 3.4% per year. And if you project that forward, you really are taking a hell of a gamble by, by holding cash, which is quite a radical way to look at it. But on the other hand, from their point of view, it's, it's actually not. It's actually the less risky way to go, which is quite something, Tika, would you agree? I would, but it's the most rational decision. I mean, if you're a corporation and you can borrow over a billion dollars at zero percent for seven years, which is what MicroStrategy just did, then they are almost guaranteed to make money, right? There, there's never been a four-year period in Bitcoin, even if you had terrible timing and bought the high every single time, where you didn't at least double your money, and in many cases, much, much more. So to me, it's an incredibly rational bet. And especially given the fact that the Federal Reserve here in the United States is just hell bent on diluting the value of the dollar. You know, they, we printed 23% more dollars last year, and, and who knows how many more dollars we printed this year with all of the uh, deficit spending that's going on with the federal government. So it's absolutely a rational decision. All right, tell us a little bit about how you got into the crypto space. You were an investment analyst, you were a hedge fund manager. What got you into this? I was a, an avowed Bitcoin hater. When I first discovered Bitcoin, I thought it was a Ponzi scheme. It just seemed ridiculous. I might have used the phrase magic internet money. Uh, but the deal was that I had not taken the time to read the Bitcoin white paper. I had not taken the time to study Bitcoin. I just made this blanket uh, judgment on what it was, and I was completely wrong. 
And then in 2016, I was attending the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and uh, Brock Pierce was giving a talk on Bitcoin. And I remember groaning inwardly, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I've got to listen to this guy before you know, getting to the next event that I, I really wanted to hear. But Brock did an amazing job explaining the blockchain. And he, he, what I realized was here was a way to transact value. Here was a way to store information in a way that was tamper-proof and was not reliant on a centralized, trusted third party. And when I understood that, Kieran, it was as if a bomb went off in my brain. And my mind was on fire because I realized in all of human history, nothing like this had ever existed. We had always been dependent on trusted networks. There was never a time in human history where you could have value that somebody else couldn't confiscate. So this was value that couldn't be confiscated. This was value that was immutable. We all knew where everybody stood. This was tamper-proof value, value. And this was something that was programmatically uh, put together where you could have no more than 21 million coins. And then when all that knowledge came together in that great explosion, the first thing I did was I changed my flight plans. I flew down to Florida, which is where my publisher is. I called a meeting of all the partners, and I said, all I'm going to do is write about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And they looked at me like I had three heads, and they said, if you do that, we'll fire you. And I said, well, okay, no problem. I'll start up my own newsletter, and I'll write about crypto on my own. And they, of course, walked back uh, that threat, and they, they gave me enough rope to, to hang myself, or, or so they thought at the time. And of course, you know, the rest is history. I wrote a report on, on Bitcoin at 428. A month later, I wrote a report on Ethereum, recommending it at $9. A few months later, I recommended NEO at 13 cents. It went to 200. And I, I just dove deep into the crypto world. And I, I flew all over the world. I must have flown two, 300,000 miles in two years. Took every meeting I could with every crypto expert I could and just inserted myself into the space and, and, and have, have not stopped since 2016. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Because you, you are known for making predictions about Bitcoin mm -hmm. and, and other cryptos as well. Where do you see Bitcoin at the end of 2021? Bitcoin will, at a very minimum, go to $100,000 this year. There's no question in my mind that we'll see $100,000 this year. So I'm comfortable saying that. Uh, will we go beyond 100K? A lot of that is going to depend on things like, will we see an ETF this year in the United States? I don't know. Will corporations take a more meaningful stake? I think they'll get their feet wet with maybe you know, 25, 50 basis points, maybe 100 basis points. Do they make the decision and say, you know what, we're going to take a 5% allocation? I don't think that happens this year, but it could. Right. I mean, the animal spirits could go nuts, but I think 100K on Bitcoin this year is a lock. I think within the next four years, even though you didn't ask me, I'm going to tell you, I think within the next four years, we are easily, easily at a half a million dollars of Bitcoin, easily at a half a million dollars of Bitcoin. It's just bearing in mind that the, the Bitcoin price has gone up by 200 percent per year compounded 
since it was started. So, uh, you know, that might seem a wild prediction, but I think history backs you up. Uh, yeah, I, I remember in 18 saying we were going to have $40,000 Bitcoin, and of course it dropped to 4K. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, uh, I said, look, yeah, OK, this is uh, I'm a little early, but but you will see forty thousand dollar Bitcoin. And then last year I said, you know what? Uh, I'm looking at the charts. It looks like we're going to see 60K Bitcoin. And so far, we've been to 58K. I know it's those these numbers seem ridiculous. If people are listening right now that have no exposure or limited exposure to this asset, you think, oh, that's crazy. That's insane. But but people have been saying that since Bitcoin was a dollar. Since Bitcoin was 20 cents, that it's insane, that it can't keep going up. You've got to remember, there's never been an asset in the world ever like Bitcoin. And if you look at companies like BNY Mellon, which is the oldest bank in America, and if you look at Mass Mutual, which is a 150-year-old insurance company, they are now getting involved with Bitcoin. BNY Mellon said they'll custody it, which is staggering. Mass Mutual went out and bought it. So why is that important? Well, think about, think about the, the quality of management you have to have in order to have a business that, that survives across two centuries, right? Think about the wars, panics, famines, pestilence that has occurred in the last 150 to 200 years. So to have a business that can survive that in the financial space, it means that you've got the greatest financial minds working in that business. And those great financial minds have made the decision to plug into Bitcoin. Think about that. As much as you think you might know about generating wealth for yourself, do you know more than BNY Mellon? I don't. Do you know more than Mass Mutual? I don't. So you have to look at the quality of the money that is now making an allocation to this asset. And you've got to say to yourself, with all humility, these groups of people are infinitely smarter than I am when it comes to placing bets that make money, period. Mm. And so if you right. can have that humility and piggyback them and put your own ideas to the side, I think you'll set yourself up to make an absolute fortune. What about your predictions on Ethereum? And are you interested in some of these smaller coins like Cardano and Polkadot and Chainlink? And, and where do you see them going? Well, yes, I, I recommended Chainlink when it was 82 cents and received more hate mail for that recommendation than I think any other recommendation I've ever made, which was people just thought I was insane for, for making that recommendation. Of course, Chainlink now is a $12 billion project, been as high as 35 bucks. I think Chainlink will continue to move higher. Chainlink provides one of the most important functions in the decentralized finance space. It provides trusted data, uh, decentralized trusted data that these protocols need in order for these smart contracts to make decisions. And so these smart contracts, for people that aren't aware, smart contract is, is computer code that acts as the trusted intermediary, right? It makes the decision about what to do. And in order to do that, it needs trusted data, right? So pricing data, for instance. So you don't want to use any pricing data source because that could be manipulated. And so Chainlink, what it does, it provides all different types of data um, that is uh, delivered in a decentralized way that can't be manipulated. And so you could make an argument, Kieran, that without Chainlink, there's no DeFi, right? That's how important they are to the infrastructure. 
And so, yes, of course, I, I think they go much higher. Now, Cardano, we own it on our portfolio more as a more as a trading uh, piece, more more of a hedge. Do I think that it's going to supplant Ethereum? No, no, I don't. But a lot of people do, and so I'm happy to ride along with uh, those other people. But uh, uh, you know, at the appropriate time, you know, we'll we'll exit that trade. I mean, we're making good money on it, but I view that more as a trade than a long-term key holding. In terms of Ethereum, like I said, I've been recommending it since it was nine and continued recommending it all through crypto winter. Again, took a lot of heat for that. You know, we went to 1450 and dropped to 80 bucks. I mean, that's that's enough to bring up your lunch. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I said, look, guys, this uh, Ethereum is the Microsoft operating system of this generation. What Microsoft was to uh, desktop computers in the 80s and 90s, Ethereum is to blockchain development. Now, it might not always be, but for the foreseeable future, uh, uh, it, it is, and you want to own it. And I think ultimately, you know, Ethereum is probably headed uh, significantly higher uh, uh, from where it is right now. I'm a very big fan of Ethereum, even with all its drawbacks and problems. Yeah, and it's now at about 15, a little bit more than $1,500. Yes. Right. Okay, Chainlink you've mentioned, uh, Cardano you've mentioned, you see that more as a trading bet. There is this discussion, is you know, Cardano um, and Polkadot, you know, are these the Ethereum killers? So there's a competition going on for what will, to use your analogy, what will be the Microsoft of the future? Mm -hmm. And it, the jury is out on that one at the moment. So there is a bit of a bet on all sides here. The jury's not out for me. Ethereum is going to win. Yes, I think Polkadot's very interesting. You know, we own it. I do think it's very interesting. I'm much more interested in Polkadot than I am in Cardano, but I think the ship has sailed. I think Ethereum is going to, the bulk of the action is going to be on Ethereum. Look at all these other chains. They're all creating compatibility with the Ethereum blockchain. Look at where all the capital in DeFi is aggregating. Sure, you've got some aggregating on some other chains. You know, something like 95 to 98% of it is aggregating on the Ethereum blockchain, even though it's slow, even though it's expensive, even though it has all these issues. I think you've got to look at where the money is going, right? It's as simple as that. Follow the money, and, and that will give you all the information you need as, as in terms of to where to place your bets. So it is clear to me that Ethereum will win. All right, a couple of quick questions here. Uh, Africa is embracing crypto with a vengeance at the moment, and the reasons are pretty obvious. You've got failing local currencies. You've got issues like governance. You've problems with getting your money out of the country and out of these failing currencies. How do you think this crypto and blockchain technology could transform Africa's future? I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that question. I, I know that for decades, people have tried to answer that question, whether it was with, and you know, insert X will transform Africa. I think that there are many countries, not just Africa, that need a stable currency. Is Bitcoin it? I don't think so. Um, because it's it's just so expensive to do microtransactions in. So I'm going to put that in the too hard to answer box, Kieran. All right. So for people who are new to crypto, what's your advice to get started? And this is a question that comes at me quite a lot is the price has gone too high. I, I just can't possibly get in. It looks too expensive. Um, you know, they, they fear they're going to lose. How would they, you recommend they start? Okay, so I said the easiest way to start is to pick an amount of money that if you lost all of it, 
would not have you crying too much and would not impoverish you in any way, shape, or form. So figure out what that amount is. Cut it in half, put half in Bitcoin, half in Ethereum. And that's how you get your feet wet in crypto. And then from there, you can make a decision if you want to go bigger into crypto, make a determination as to the amount of risk capital you want to take from your net worth or from your liquid net worth that you can allocate. And you've got to mentally say to yourself, if this goes to zero, one, it's not going to negatively impact my life. And two, I'm not going to cry about it too much. That's the way you get started in crypto. Because if you always say it's too high, it's too high, it's too high, you're never going to get in. I know people that were exposed to Bitcoin at 20 bucks and they watched it go to 100 and they said it's too high. And then it went to 1200 and then it went back down to 250 and they said, oh, no, no, it's too high. I, I remember when it was 100 or I remember when it was 20. I remember when it was 30. So it's very easy to get to get stuck in that because nobody likes to look foolish, right? Nobody likes to say, "Oh, I put two thousand dollars in this, and now it's now it's only worth a thousand." That's the risk you have to take with crypto because it is volatile. But so long as you're doing it with a trivial amount of money, um, then 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 at least you're getting your feet wet in the space. And you have to ask yourself, like, what if I'm wrong? What if this is not? expensive? What if this in hindsight is actually really cheap? What's the price of that regret, right? Like if this goes to a half a million or a million dollars of Bitcoin, right? What's that going to cost me in regret? What's that going to cost me in my future lifestyle? What's, what, what damage am I doing to my future self by not at least taking a small amount of money and putting this into this idea? You, you've got to think about that um, because the, the opportunity to make this amount of money out of an asset, it, it, it's very rare. You might see it once in an entire lifetime, and, and, you, and, and it, the window is very limited. And once you miss that window, it's gone forever. So if you're 30, 40, or 50, you might never see this again. If you're in your 20s, maybe you'll have it shot one more time in your life, but you might be in your mid-50s. So you've got to think about that opportunity cost. That is, is what should weigh heavier in your mind than whether you're a little late in Bitcoin, you know, and, and, and you see a bit of a drop if you think you're buying in a little late. I think the risk of not being involved is far greater than the risk of putting a, a, an inconsequential sum of money into it now. All right, here's my final question for you. They call you Mr. Big T, uh, and you used to be a rugby player. Now, this will be interesting for South Africans. Tell us a little bit about your rugby career. You were a, you were a right-head prop at one time. I was, yes. I've always been a very big kid. And uh, so, you know, when I was 13, 14, I looked like I was 18, 19. You know, six foot, very large and stocky. So I, I played on the, on the school team. And uh, it, some of the best times of my life, you know, fellow rugby players, I mean, they're, it doesn't matter what age they are. I mean, they're real nuts, but in the, in the best way possible. Just great fun. And, you know, I, I came to the States when I was 16, and, and that's really when I stopped playing rugby. And that was the, the one regret I had leaving the, the UK, that uh, I, I just didn't play rugby anymore. When I came to the States and I asked about rugby, people looked at me like I, I was nuts. And they said, no, we only play football here. So, um, yeah, it was a great time, a uh, lot of fun, and missed it. And uh, uh, But, you know, now I'm a, I'm a, bit, I'm a, bit, old to be, a bit old to be playing rugby. You're born in the UK, but your parents are from New Zealand, is that right? No, no, actually, my parents are from South America, from a country called Guyana. 
and oh, okay. uh, they met in the UK, and I was I was born and raised in the UK, and then left the UK when I was 16 and, and came to the United States and started working at Lehman Brothers uh, in the brokerage business when I was 18. And uh, and then by the time I was 20, I became the youngest VP in the in the firm's history and uh, had a, had a great career on Wall Street and then ran a hedge fund for a while and and then got involved in the newsletter business. Great stuff, Tika Tawiri. Thank you so much for talking to us on MoneyWeb. And uh, let's check in with you a little bit later. I'm very keen to see how these predictions play out. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.